Genesis. Did you know that? Yeah, good. And uh, I, unlike my esteemed colleague, I, I studied and I, I plan on covering more than one verse today, at least two, two verses today. And we're going to talk about this marvelous, marvelous uh, text. Uh, and uh, so let's take a look. Genesis chapter 1. By the way, uh, as you turn there, um, Genesis is not actually the, the original title. The original title is called Bereshit, Bereshit, which means in the beginning. It's Hebrew for in the beginning. And that's how the books of the Bible were named from a phrase in the first verse. So in this case, it was Bereshit. How did it get to be Genesis. Uh, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Greek translators changed it into Genesis, origins or beginning, which is perfectly fine, no problem whatsoever. But I think it might be interesting for you to note uh, how the titles were read originally. So this is called Bereshit in the beginning because that's the first phrase in the first verse that Brother Chuck uh, covered for us last week. So take a look now at verse 2. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So, folks, the earth had to be formed, and it had to be filled. Why? Because it was unformed and empty. And God's intent was to create a habitation suitable for us's, people like you and I. Seriously. We are called the crown of God's creation. He has an investment in us. I hope you're persuaded of that. But the situation at the time was not suitable for our sustenance. It was unformed, unfilled, and God set about the business of preparing it for us. So a general breakdown of uh, the creation order is that on the first three days, God formed it, and on the second set of three days, he filled it. That's generally what you will see happening over here as we go through the text. And you see the phrase formless and empty. Your translation might say formless and void, something like that, same thing. In Hebrew, it's tohu wavohu, tohu wavohu. It's uh, the words sound alike, tohu wavohu, uh, to accentuate the fact that there was nothing ness. <laughs> If God didn't do something about it, you and I could never, ever be sustained on the earth. It could not support human life, but that was no hindrance to God because, as you see, it says the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the surface of the waters. Uh, the sense is hovering in the same sense as, a, as an expectant uh, mom um, awaiting the birth of this habitation for humankind. Now, does anyone have a translation that renders this in a way other than the Spirit of God? Does it say anything else in your Bible, anything different? Does anyone have a translation that says the breath of God or the wind of God? Good. There you go. So we agree finally on one thing. Uh, You see, there's a word called ruach. That's the word in Hebrew for spirit, ruach, but it could also be translated breath or wind. So this could just as easily have been rendered the wind of God or the creative breath of God was hovering over the waters. It could be. So we cannot be dogmatic with regard to whether this is a specific reference to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, he was in existence then. Because he's God and has pre-existence. We know that. I think it likely is a reference to the Spirit of God, and so do all of our translators. Did you notice? Without exception, every translator behind every Bible in here, and I bet we have six or seven or eight or maybe more different translations, everyone rendered it the Spirit of God. Uh, is there a capital S or a small s? Capital S. Um, so the, the fact that it's a capital S means your translators believe uh, that this is a reference to the Spirit of God. Now, I happen to agree because the Spirit of God is God's agent in creation, but that's not something I would want to really be unduly dogmatic about. We know that God exerted creative force 
through the agent of his breath or of his spirit so as to form and fill the otherwise unformed and unfilled universe. And then it says that the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the, does your Bible say waters? So usually when we think of waters, we think of seas and rivers, but they didn't come actually to be just yet. Yes, Clifton. Yes. Uh, this is an excellent observation Clifton makes. Um, uh, the word for God, there are many different words for God behind our one English word, God. In this case, you are correct. It's the word Elohim. And in most cases, when the word Elohim is used in the Old Testament, it's used with reference to God as sovereign, as omnipotent, as creator God. And, and, uh, the word Elohim is plural. Isn't that interesting to refer to God, uh, as a plurality? This will become even more interesting when we get to the passage, if we ever get there, that says, let us make man, let us Make man in our image. Who's God speaking to? Well, we'll we'll talk about it when we get there, but it has to do with the word Elohim. Have you heard of the word Yahweh? That's another name for God. But Yahweh is almost always used with reference to God entering into covenant relationship with a person or a nation. So you have Elohim, almighty God, and you have Yahweh, uh, Emmanuel, close, relational, personal God. Which God is it? It's both, don't you see? He's perfect in all of his perfections. All righty. So it says that the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the surface of the waters. Why waters? It's not a reference to seas or rivers yet in this case. Uh, this is a reference to the fluidity of the cosmos as it existed. There were solid surfaces, but also mushy surfaces. Remember, it was formless and it was void. So it's a reference to the fluidity of the universe. Okay. So now we have to stop and get into something that uh, I hope you find interesting. It's called the gap theory. And we have to do it because uh, Brother Chuck did not want to. And, you know, I, I'm carrying the load. You know, I, I get the passages on women's roles. I get all of this stuff. And, you know, my people have been persecuted for centuries. I, Okay, it's my role in life, Chuck, and I'm glad to perform. All right, so here's the deal. And by the way, um, you may be interested to know that Brother Chuck and I are in full agreement about what I'm about to tell you about the gap theory and also something else that will emerge here in just a second. But first, let me explain to you what it is. Those who hold to the gap theory believe that verse 1, which Brother Chuck covered last week, is a reference to God's wonderful creation. It surely is. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, so those who hold to the gap theory say when verse 1 what verse 1 is speaking about is the totality of God's creative activity. It took place then perfectly. By the way, this is your daughter from A&M. Did you know that? And uh, whoop all you want, but they got slaughtered yesterday. You know, uh, <laughs> I just... <laughs> but we're glad you're here anyway, and, and uh, we have a support group for those who are depressed. And... <laughs> So uh, gap theory proponents say, verse 1, that's creation. And in verse 1, God created everything, uh, all living things, animals, dinosaurs, uh, every, everything was taken. I mean, this is the totality, was God's perfected and completed work of creation. But somewhere between verse 1 and verse 2, in a gap, that's where they get the name gap theory, somewhere between verse 1 and 2, in a gap which could have lasted millions and millions of years, bad things happened, one of which was uh, Satan was cast down to earth during that gap. That's what they say. Satan rebelled against God. He wanted to be like the Most High God, but you can't be because you're not. So the Most High God showed him who he is and threw him down to earth in the gap between verse 1 and verse 2. And Satan on earth led people into sin, uh, corrupted the otherwise perfect universe that God made and God had to judge it because of sin and death and 
all the corruption of the world, you see. And God had to judge it. And what we're reading about in verse 2 is the evidence of the judgment of God on his hitherto perfect universe. And so there's darkness and it's empty and there's nothing to it. This is all they say the judgment of God. That's that's what the gap theory essentially um, is talking about. So let me tell you why I think that's that that's not accurate. There's a lot of reasons why. First of all, there's something called eisegesis. Eisegesis is the opposite of exegesis. Exegesis is when you lift from the scripture its meaning through careful study and prayer. Exegesis. Eisegesis is when you focused on your brain too much and read your thinking back into the text. In exegesis, you put yourself under the Bible. In eisegesis, you put the Bible under you. And you impose your thinking upon it. The gap theory is eisegesis. Folks, there's absolutely no hint of biblical evidence to support it. Not etymologically, language-wise. So the language here... So, for instance, it doesn't say in verse 2 that the world became dark and full formless and void, as if it had a prior perfect state and became corrupted. It doesn't say that at all. The language doesn't lend itself to the gap theory. Neither does any uh, other scripture. Don't you think if all this significant stuff happened that God would have said something about it? If he created the entire universe, it was populated by living beings, including us, animals, dinosaurs, fossil record, the whole deal. Don't you think God would have mentioned something to it? Since he hasn't, it's purely based on speculation, the gap theory. We have absolutely no basis to believe it's true. Also, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, which maybe we'll get to someday. Uh, Verse 31, at the end of creation, God took a look at it and declared his creation to be very good. Folks, there's no way he would have made that pronouncement upon uh, what he created if evil and sin had already entered into the world and corrupted it. Don't you see? When he says it's very good, that means his untainted sinless universe. What God did was very good. What we did was very bad. But, 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 but the very bad stuff we did had not yet corrupted the very good stuff that God did. So there's absolutely no basis really to believe in the gap theory, which begs the question, then why do people hold to it, including Christians? Why? Um, I think they do so in order to try to reconcile um, the theories of modern science with the biblical record in some fashion. See, modern science teaches a very, very old earth, billions of years old, in, in order to allow for the process of evolution, don't you see? The fossil record and the process of evolution requires an old earth. But the biblical record uh, seems to purport a much younger earth. If you add up the genealogies given in the Bible of humankind, we don't have an old earth. We have a young earth in which there wouldn't be enough time for the process of evolution to have sufficiently run its course so that you and I pop out from monkeys after I mean, it takes a lot of time for that to happen. For some of us, less time than others, but for most of us. So, so, but, but here's the deal. I don't think the Great Commission would have us laboring too much over the task of harmonizing bad science with good Bible. I think good Bible has to take precedence over bad science. And you don't have to worry about harmonizing the Bible with good science. Because good science simply gives evidence, as does good history, good archaeology, good psychology, good anything. It supports the biblical record. If it's bad science, there is disharmony between it and the biblical record. And I'm not going to try to harmonize it by coming up with speculative things like the gap theory. Folks, the gap theory indicates, based on fossil record and so on, that prior to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, there was sin and suffering and sickness and death. That's what they say. But the scriptures say that's not true. 
Because the origin of all that stuff was the sin of first man, Adam, who wasn't yet created. So, for instance, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. But gap theorists say, oh, no, there was sin in the world prior to Adam. Well, apparently God's confused about all this because he gave us Romans chapter 5, verse 12. So can you see the gap? Don't go for that stuff. That's sheer and utter nonsense. When you read, just as we normal, clear-thinking people are reading from verse 1 to verse 2, there's absolutely nothing that would cause an objective-thinking person to speculate about a gap between verse 1 and 2 in which all of this stuff happened. It just doesn't. Genesis 1 gives the clear impression of one creation account, not that God has two. He created the world. Satan messed it up through sin. God got real mad, judged it with darkness, formlessness, and messed it all up, made it fluid and all this kind of stuff, then had a good day, and in Genesis 3, uh, woke up and said, now be good to these people, and, and recreated the world. Now, you can hold to that if you want, but the burden of proof then would be on you to prove it. Based on what? What linguistic and scientific and biblical evidence do you have to suggest that, folks, there's... There's absolutely, there's absolutely not. No, by the way, verse 2, you see where it uses to say darkness and that the world is formless and void? Some people imply uh, that those are bad things due to immorality and sin, that those are the consequences of God's judgment. But they're not. They're absolutely morally neutral. God is simply stating to us, folks, before his creative hand, we couldn't live here. That's all he's saying. He's not saying darkness is inherently evil. I know it's used as a metaphor, prince of darkness, but please remember the context. The darkness here was neither good nor bad. It just is. The fact that the world was formless and void, that's not a consequence of God's judgment. That's how things started before God formed it and filled it. And God is spelling all this out just to show us how important we are. He took all that was, and that was unfitting for us and made it fit for us. Why? Because he had a plan and purpose for us that we have fallen short of, for sure. But he had a plan and purpose for us. Okay, so that's that's the gap theory, which uh, uh, holds no water in my opinion. So then we get to verse 3, and it says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So the first step God took in remedying the dark earth was his command to bring forth light upon it. Now, do you notice the source of creation's first light is not stated? Normally, we think of light being sourced in what's called luminaries, like the sun, the moon, the stars. But those aren't created until day four. We're only on day one. So what's the source of light if you have no sun, moon, or stars? Would anyone like to venture a thought? God, absolutely. By the way, why is it such a jump in our thinking to imagine that almighty God in and of himself is the source of light. He does not need luminaries like the sun, the moon, and the stars as vehicles of light. For instance, we're reading about this in the first book of the Bible. Let me take you to the last book of the Bible just for a second. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. It speaks about the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem in which you and I, if we're Christians, will live. And it says this of that. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God has illumined it. And get this. And its lamp is the Lamb. You see how cool that is? God does not need the sun, the moon, and the stars to come up with sources of light. He is the ultimate source of light. His presence enlightens. And so that's what you get, it seems to me, in verse 3. Now, folks, that yes, ma'am. Go say more about that. 
Yes. Yes. Jesus. This, did you hear this? In the first three verses, we have um, an allusion to the three persons of the Trinity. Verse 1, God the Father. Verse 2, God the Holy Spirit. And now verse 3, uh, Jesus, the light of the world uh, in, in verse 3. Very, very excellent observation. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. Really great. So you see uh, here that the Creator... Well, let me ask you if you see this. Do you know that God could have created things, all things in an instant? He didn't need six days, did he? He didn't need to create. Obviously, he didn't need luminaries for light. He himself is the light. Why did he go through all this? This is a phased approach to filling the universe over six days. Why? I think it's because it's a prototype of how God normally works. Do you know he normally works through processes, not just events? Now, I'll tell you why that's theologically significant. Because when we're hurting, we have an illness or financial problem, marital, whatever it is, we're really looking for the event of God's deliverance from it. The event. Do it now. In your totality, do it now. Miracle-working God. He can, for sure. That he can doesn't mean that's normally the way he works. When he delivers as a one-time event, boom. I must tell you that's the exception to the way he normally works. The way he normally works is through processes. So, for instance, you and I are in the process of becoming like Christ, are we not? But he could have pronounced that upon us in an instant. You and I are in the process of having victory over sin, even having sin eradicated from our lives. And God could have just said, sin, be gone. But he did not. That's called the process of sanctification. I'm, I'm focusing on this because you get a lot of TV theology, which is emphasizing a little too much the event of God's deliverance instead of the process. Some of us were in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few weeks ago, during which time the Lord Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass from me. And the Father said, thanks for asking me. No. And the son had to drink that cup and die on the cross. In that case, the father did not deliver his son from his Gethsemane. He delivered him through his Gethsemane. And frankly, that's going to be the normal Christian life for most of us here. By the way, Gethsemane or Gatshmanim in Hebrew means olive press. Things were pressing down upon the Lord as life circumstances pressed down upon you and I. And in most cases, oh, don't you worry. God is going to deliver, but generally through a process, not an event. He could have zapped Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land in a second, not 40 years. There's a process of growth, of pruning, of learning to be dependent on God. I do not want you to minimize God's miracle-working power. I just do not want you to think that's the normative way he operates. By the way, if that was nor if miracle was the norm, it would cease to be miracle. It would be commonplace, wouldn't it? It has to be, by definition, an exception to, to the rule. So what I'm encouraging is a little more balanced than maybe, maybe you will find on, on TV. You know, People are claiming their miracle now, claiming their miracle now. Um, I think it's a good idea to hang on to the Lord Jesus when you're going through hard times and trust him for daily bread and ask him to get you through the day. And ask him ultimately to, to deliver you through your Gethsemane. Why not from it? Because going through it produces good things in our lives. Let's just be honest, folks. It just, it just does. Well, anyway, do you notice where it says, God said, then God said, let there be light. Now, I want to mention something here. If God said it, it implies something. It implies he's the creator and creation is apart from him. It implies the maker is different from what has been made. See, if, if he said, let there be light, and then there was light, the light which God created was not him. It was apart from him. All that God created comes from his, the power of his divine word. Let there be, let there be, let there be. And God said, let there be. But everything that God created, notice, has an existence apart from him. He sustains it, but you cannot merge the two and associate what has been made with the maker as if they're one and the same. I'll tell you why. 
If you do that, you worship and serve what has been made instead of the maker. By the way, that's called pantheism. Pantheism. There are major world religions that are pantheistic. What that means is they're worshiping all things created as God, as if it was God. By the way, Native American um, religion is largely pantheistic. Now, I know I'm, I'm perhaps offending people. I mean nothing of the sort. I just want to tell you the truth. It's just the truth. It's pantheism. The lake is not created by God. It is God. The tree is God. The mountains are God. See, that's called pantheism. Remember a guy named John Denver? He was a great musician. Wasn't he wonderful singing? Played the guitar and everything. But he was a lousy theologian. I don't know if you knew this. He could sing, but he was a lousy theologian. He was a pantheist, you see. He wrote many of his songs about nature because that was his God. Modern-day environmentalism is largely pantheistic. Just the phrase um, Mother Earth is, is a pantheistic expression. There's no such thing as Mother Earth, as if the Earth has its own independent existence. Are you kidding? As if it ought to be worshipped and cared for as if it is God. What about Father God who made so-called Mother Earth? Don't you see? The difference. So don't merge the two. Otherwise, you become pantheistic. Now, we should take care of the environment. Don't get me wrong. But you shouldn't worship it. Yes, sir. What does that mean? That is a great point. I miss where you were going. That is great. So our brother is saying, is this why we have free will? And meaning... He knows what we're going to do, but he's given us the freedom to make the... Absolutely! Because we're not God, brother. I mean, he made us, and we owe our existence to him, but we don't want to confuse us with him. We can't be our own gods. We have free will. We're free moral agents. That is a very excellent observation, it seems to me. And sometimes people associate us with God. So we were... it's called humanism. It's another form of pantheism where we're worshiping the human instead of the God who made the human. You see, that is a great observation. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so watch out for pantheism. Not a good deal. God said he was, and he spoke into existence the things that followed. Therefore, they have a subordinate position with reference to to the God who is there. Then it says in verse 4, God saw that the light was good. And I just want you to know that Brother Chuck covered one measly verse. And look at me. I'm already on verse 4. Are you kidding You are getting your money's worth today, folks. Yes, indeed. Okay, look, God saw that the light was good. You know what that is? That is the first divine evaluation of what he made. It's as if he was like an artist admiring the work on his easel uh, on canvas. He stepped back and he said, wow, that came out really, really good. But it isn't quite like that, as if he didn't know it would be good. This is called the language of accommodation. What does that mean? Do you know all language is an accommodation by God for us? All human languages are an accommodation. It's God taking lofty, eternal truths that he knows of, the Son knows of, and the Spirit knows of, and putting them in language so that we can know of them. All of the Bible is an accommodation. It's God who has no beginning or any end, putting his thoughts, his mind in words, because you and I function that way. We use words and sentences and paragraphs and syntax and chapters and all the rest. So all language is an accommodation. For instance, when the Bible says the right, the mighty right arm, the mighty right arm of God, that's the language of accommodation. That doesn't mean literally that God has an arm. An arm, a right arm is a sign. You know, guys, we flex our stuff over here, our bicep. It's a sign of strength. It means God is strong. Why didn't he just say, because, because we know what an arm is. We know about muscles and stuff like that. Jesus says, I am the door. What? That's the language of accommodation. You know, we understand what a door is. A door is what you go through to enter into. That's what he's saying. I'm the entry point into salvation. See, this is language of accommodation. So too is this. God saw the light was good. He knew it would be good. Why? Because a good God doesn't have the capacity to create anything bad. The reason why he said what he did was good is for us. It wasn't for him. It's for us to know. Do you know what made it bad? We did. He made it good. 
How did it go from good to bad? Look in the mirror. We did that. You know what this means? Those who claim that all matter is evil are wrong. That's a whole school of thought called something. Does anyone know what it's called? Gnosticism. Starts with a G, like Gnosticism, but the G is silent. Gnosticism means knowledge. They thought only certain people had special knowledge and the rest of us poor slobs. We don't know anything. Most of the New Testament letters are written to confront Gnosticism. It's important to know that, and then you'll understand uh, a lot of, uh, of why the writers of the New Testament say what they say. Gnosticism, all matter is evil. Gnostics essentially are insulting God. They're saying to God, you didn't create good stuff. It's bad stuff you created. By the way, Gnostics denied the incarnation of God. God could not be enfleshed because flesh, body, is matter, and all matter is evil. So if God, Jesus, became embodied, he could not be God because all matter is evil. See how they got to that, by the way? By the way, modern forms of Gnosticism, you you get it even with uh, different groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and so on, uh, or uh, Islam. Um, Jesus never died literally on a cross and rose from the dead. It was a spirit. You see, God would not inhabit an uh, uh, evil body. Can you see strains of Gnosticism even in some of these cults and other religious groups? So the point is, that's not true. God is saying matter is inherently amoral. It's neutral. There's nothing wrong with it. Are you kidding me? What's wrong with it is what you did to it. The ramifications of your sin, which you think you do in private and have a right to, has infected the environment that God created for us to live in. It has tainted the world. Sin has ramifications beyond the bedroom. You know, two consenting adults, it's none of your business. Yeah, it is. We're all connected. This idea of I can just in a disconnected private way do my thing. I can partmentalize my sin and then I could, you know, be an upstanding fine citizen. That's a very naive point of view of sin. The number one environmental pollutant is sin. That's why the environmental movement is a false religion. Because it's suggesting to us that it's environmental pollution, water pollution, air pollution, that's the foe. Therefore, we have to save it, Mother Earth, you see it. We have to say, no, 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 no. We don't have to save Mother Earth. We have to be saved by Father God. We polluted the environment. That's why it says in Romans, the anxious longing of creation is for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is burdened down by the effects of sin due to us. It's not due to God. What he made is very, very good, as is indicated by the pronouncement in verse 4. And it says, and then God separated light from darkness. This is the first of three separation points in the creation account. You'll see the others as we go on in weeks ahead, but this is the first. Why did God affect a separation between light and darkness? It's so that you and I can live. In order for this to happen, in order for there to be a separation of light from darkness, the earth has to revolve on its access daily. That's what causes night and day. God did that, you see. And the separation of light from darkness leaves us with a little bit of a glimpse of what things were like when it was all dark. When it gets to be night, some of us don't like to go out. Some of us don't like to drive. People lock things. If you're away from home at night, you leave the light on at home. So, you know, we treat darkness different than light. I wonder if it's just a glimpse of what things were like before God fashioned the universe and made it really livable for us. At any rate... He separated light from darkness, and in verse 5, he named them. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So what's behind that? In, uh, in uh, the ancient world, to name something implies you have authority over it. Um, for God to name these things is as if to say, I'm sovereign. I'm the creator. I made them. I can call them things. Later, he's going to delegate some authority to humankind. 
Remember? Name the animals, Adam, and whatever you call them, so shall it be called. He's going to delegate some of his authority, but he possesses it inherently. This is a sign of his sovereignty over his creation. Then it says, and there was evening and there was morning one day. So does everyone's Bible end that way? One, in verse 5, I mean, one day. Let's say that. Okay. So uh, in Hebrew, or the first day, gotcha, gotcha. In Hebrew, the word day is yom, Y-O-M, yom. That's just a given in every translation. The word day is, uh, is underlined by the Hebrew word yom. So now there's a lot of controversy over what does day mean? What kind of day is day? For instance, one approach or interpretation of the word day uh, has led to something called the day-age theory. Day, then hyphen, age theory. Those who hold to it say that a day is not a literal day in the sense of a 24-hour period of time. It's an age of unbounded time. could be millions of years. So when the Bible speaks of six days of creation and then the seventh day on which God rested, it does not mean a literal week of seven days. It means each day could have been eons of time, uh, millions of years, and there might even have been lots of time in between days. It's called the day-age theory. Each day in Genesis that we're reading about, this one, the first day, uh, is, they would say, represents a much longer period of time, maybe even millions of years. So... Yeah, eisegesis, Tom. And here's, in my opinion, one of the reasons for it, because many Christians hold to the day-age theory. I think it's an attempt, once again, to harmonize Scripture with something called theistic evolution. Now, most thinking Christians would not be comfortable with evolution. So evolutionists and creationists have been at odds with one another in our school system and all the rest. We got it. So creationists who think our goal is to make friends with everybody uh, have come up with this thing called theistic evolution, which says, but what if God used the evolutionary process? Ah, then we could have both the best of both worlds. We could have a creator and also be friends with evolutionists. So it's called theistic. The word theistic like theos, meaning God. We get the word theology, theistic. God used the process of evolution, they say. Well, how? Through these day ages. You see, evolution requires an old earth, not a young earth. You need a very old earth in order for the evolutionary process to take place. You know, you just don't go from nothing to us overnight. You need like billions and billions of years. So so a young earth, which I believe is, as you look at the genealogies of the Bible, uh, is what the Bible teaches, a young, relatively young earth. The young earth doesn't uh, provide enough time for evolution to take place. So if we come up with theistic evolution, we can say, I know these aren't actual days. These are like billions of years, and therefore they allow for evolution. Oh, so God planned on the evolutionary process being the way you and I actually developed and came to be. But it's a God thing. That's why each of these days is not a 24-hour period. It could be eons of time. Once again, speculative, eisegesis, uh, an attempt to harmonize good scripture with bad science, seems to me. There's no problem harmonizing good scripture with good science, but bad science, why do you want to mess with that? Folks, there's absolutely no good reason to take the word day here as being anything but a literal day. By the way, you may be interested in knowing, once again, Brother Chuck and I agree on this one too, I'm telling you. We have agreed on nothing ever until now. No, I'm kidding. So so we both believe that this is a literal day. Now, wait, some will say. What about the use of the word day in a figurative or metaphorical way, as in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8? I'll read it to you. And you're familiar with it. 
with the Lord, one day is like what? Yeah, and a thousand years is like one day. And so they will say, see, that's the use of the day in a non-literal day sense. And they're correct. But context determines whether to take the word day literally or figuratively. In the last class, Debbie Doris, you know Debbie, made this wonderful observation. I told her I was going to steal it and not give her credit, but I feel a little guilty, so I gave her some credit. She said, essentially, how could, in Genesis, God be using the term day figuratively before he uses it literally? See, in order to take a literal word and give it a figurative meaning, the literal has to precede the figurative. You see what she was... Debbie is absolutely, absolutely... um, Correct. So, so you have to look at context. Folks, let me tell you something. There's not one case in the Old Testament, any book outside of Genesis and Genesis in the Old Testament, where when you have uh, the appearance of the word yom and a number is attached to it, like day one or first day or second day, whenever you attach a numerical thing to the word yom, it is never, ever, ever used in a figurative sense. It's always a literal 24-hour day. Always. You know what always means? Always. So if the day-age theorists want to give the, ter- the word yom in Genesis a figurative meaning, don't you see the burden of proving that is on them? Burden's not on us to disprove it. How do you pull that out of the air? It flies in the face of every other usage of the word yom when it is in, used in association with a number in the Old Testament. Not only that. Let me read you this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. You're familiar with this. It's the, about the fourth commandment, about the Sabbath. Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Moses in Exodus is referring us back to Genesis. Six days, the Lord made heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What sense do you think the Jewish recipients took that in? They didn't take it to be figurative. They took it to be literal. There are six days you work, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You rest. That's the Sabbath. They weren't talking about eons of time and metaphors and figurative. They were talking about a week of seven days because God created the world in six literal days. He Saw it was very good and rested, and we're supposed to follow suit. That's what the Hebrew mind was saying in Exodus chapter 20. None of this day-age theory kind of stuff. But wait. The day-age theorists say, hang on just a second. Uh, you see the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning? Those who take the word day literally, guys like me, Brother Chuck, most of you, we will say, and look at this defining phrase, evening and morning. See, just in, God is saying, just in case you people read something into this, let me just tell you what kind of day I'm talking about. I'm talking about a day that begins in the evening that ends in the morning. Why does he start in the evening? Because that's Hebrew time re- re- reckoning. Do you know that? We don't start our days in the morning. We start them the evening before the morning. That's how we work it. I hate to keep rubbing this Jewish stuff in your face, but I didn't write this Jewish book. Um, uh, uh, God did and the reason why a guy told me the other day why do you keep bringing up this Jewish stuff you know that just kind of tells me this guy has not been taught the Jewish roots of the Bible that's why he thinks I'm bringing it up I'm not bringing up anything that is the Jewish time reckoning I just told you that's not Rothberg getting a kick out of being Jewish I'm just trying to tell you a fact of life here the Jewish day starts at night Ends in the morning. So God is speaking to Jews here. By the way, Moses, did you know he's Jewish? I don't know if you knew this. Sorry for bringing that up. <laughs> you know, but, but I'm just trying to, he's writing to Jews. You know, I don't know why God pulled all that off, but he just did. But anyway, anyway, so they, so we would say evening and morning. No, 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 that's a literal day. There's nothing figurative poetic about that. But the day age theorists would say, ah, oh, got you there. They would say, in order for there to be evening and morning, you need the sun. You need a source of light. But you don't have the sun until day four, that's what they say. But wait, 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 wait just a second. In order for there to be evening and morning, you need two things. You need a rotating earth and you need a light source. 
Well, um, we already have a rotating earth because that's how God put into effect evening and morning. And you already have the light source. That's the first thing God created. Let there be light. You have the two ingredients to make for an actual day, evening and morning, a rotating earth on its axis. And God is the source of light. He's not waiting for day four for there to be light. Remember, he is the light of the world. So that's a very foolish argument, it seems to me. Folks, here's the deal. Um, this is overwhelming stuff, that there is a God. By the way, do you notice the first one in the beginning, God? No attempt to prove his existence. Did you notice that? It just declares his existence. Why? Because later the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. What's that mean, unintelligent person? No, it's not, it's not a, to degrade one's intelligence. When the Bible speaks of the term fool, it means a moral fool, not an intellectual fool. There are all kinds of God deniers who are real, real smart people. But morally, morally, they're, uh, they're fools. Yeah, that's what the term means. So the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What does that mean? Why is that a moral problem? Because certain people don't want to acknowledge the existence of God because then they have to submit to him. This way you can do whatever, any immoral stuff you want. There's no God. You see what I mean? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So, so the, the first verse presumes the existence of God in the beginning, God. So there is a God. Second, he made what could not make itself. You cannot explain with credibility, scientific or otherwise, you cannot explain the cosmos that is now formed and filled, ordered and systematized, and sustaining life. You cannot explain that except by a creator. The design of the universe begs the existence of a designer. This is not faith. This is good science. What does good science do? Let's look to the facts. Let's look to the evidence. And let's come to a conclusion based on the evidence. A foolish conclusion is there is no God. But, but, but the evidence is staring me in the face. How did the design of the universe came to be without a master designer? How did the plan, seasons, days, the whole thing, how did all this happen without a designer? So there is a God. He made the universe and he made it supernaturally. He didn't make it as we think he should make it. He didn't make it... Um, through a blood, sweat, and tears, in his creative word, he created the universe. He's able to do this. And by the way, this is, this is to remind us of the ultimate work of God in our life. One in the physical universe is creation, but in spiritual reality, it's recreation of new life in us. Uh, Jesus is the word of God. And when we recognize him for who he is, he sheds his light in our hearts. He speaks new life into us. He forms and fills the mess of our lives that existed apart from him. You see, the, what he did in the physical universe is a foreshadowing. And when God rested from his physical work, now he's given us permission to rest from our spiritual efforts to work for him. Are you kidding me? That's why the Bible says labor to enter into Sabbath rest. Why? Because Jesus finished the work of redemption just as God finished the work of creation. Folks, it's literal. It's true. There's no gap theory. There's no figurative language. The word day means the word day. God is real. He spoke things into existence. He made the world for one such as you and I. We've polluted it. He loves us. He's cleaning up the environment on the inside when we invite him to. He forgives our sin. He casts them behind his back. He's recreating new light, life in us. Jesus is the source of life. He's the light of the world. He enlightens us. We are the crown of God's creation. And there'll be a day when God will take a step back and look you and I, and he will say, ah, it is very good. You are very good. You are very good. Really? Thank you. No, not you. My work in you is very, very good. You couldn't create the world, and you can't uh, take credit for what I've done in you. 
One day I'll look and I will admire the work I've done in you. You're like a work of art to me. There's no explanation for the universe apart from me. There's no explanation from you apart from me. I made you who you are today. I changed your mind. I changed your heart. I opened your eyes. I put you on a new path. You're not there just yet because I'm not delivering you overnight. I'm bringing you through a wilderness journey just like I did ancient Israel. And one day you're going to get to the land of promise and you better not take credit for your arrival. I got you there. As I acted supernaturally in physical creation, so too I've acted supernaturally in spiritual recreation of a new life in Christ. I'm telling you, if anyone's in Christ, he's new. Old has passed away. New has come. Folks, if we don't take Genesis chapter 1 literally, people will say, as did a man in the last class, Stuart, you're making a big deal over nothing. Can't we Christians differ on these things? Yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. But it is very serious, and I'll tell you why. If we begin to see the language of Genesis to be figurative and non-literal, then when are we going to stop doing that? There's a whole bunch of other stuff that follows Genesis. Am I going to pick and choose what I think makes sense or what I think is just poetic? Is Jesus figurative? Is there no real Jesus? Is he a figment of my imagination? Is sin just a metaphor for me who makes mistakes from time to time? Is hell not a real place? You know, it goes on and on and on and on and on. So it's very, very important. I hope. You simply take the language of Genesis at its word because it is the word of God. Lord Jesus, it is the word of God. You are the word of God. We know this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We take that, we take you, to be literally true. We take our salvation to be literally true. We take our sin problem, which you solve, to be literally true. We take our homeland, heaven, to be literally true. We look forward to the time when we meet up with you there face to face. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for, in the meantime, providing a place in which we can be sustained and supplied in which we can live, a habitation fit for us until we enter into the new Jerusalem. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, folks, two minutes early, holy Toledo. Don't waste your time. Two minutes to spend. Folks, next week, Lord willing, the second day of creation will be our topic.